This is, um, this is Palm Sunday, and I want to look at this. Can you guys hear me okay? Okay. I want to look at this from uh, just a unique perspective uh, in light of the trip that we just took and what does Palm Sunday mean, but from a perspective on a very practical level, okay? So let's turn to John chapter 10. I want to look at two chapters. I want to look at three chapters in the book of John. Um, and I want to just talk about the secret of satisfaction, how we are satisfied. And it seems to me that the more we have, the more we gather, the more we keep to ourselves, the less satisfied we are. But when we are in a culture where we were just at, where people have so little and so much joy that they have because of Christ, uh, in some cases, having lost everything, there's so much joy and so much satisfaction. And so Jesus here, um, in the context of Palm Sunday, we're going to get to that in a second. But Jesus here in John chapter 10, verse 27 through 29, I'm just going to read this. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, what must we do? And he's speaking to his disciples here. What, and the disciples respond, they say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Does that sound like an American question? Give me a job to do so I can feel good about myself, so I can feel significant, right? What must I do? Uh, what, must we, we, what must we do to be doing the works of God? How many times have we been in a place where we feel bad about ourselves? We feel guilty. We feel like we're not doing enough. And we say, I need to do more. And we say, God, give me more work to do. And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. Okay, this is the work of God that what What does it say there that you would believe in him whom he has sent. Amen. John chapter 12. Let's go to John chapter 12, verse 13, verse 12. John 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd, John 12, 12. The next day, the the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. You know, we don't understand what satisfaction is without understanding the reality of what spiritual hunger is. And spiritual hunger is because we are deep people. We are deep people. We are, we are not shallow people. As a human being, we are not shallow people. We are very deep. Many don't realize how discontent they are and how deep the desires of their heart are, things that we think are going to satisfy us don't. Have you been there before? <laughs> it's called buyer's remorse, right? Oh. <laughs> we have a car salesman here, don't. <laughs> we don't understand. We are first, you know what? We are first spiritual people before we are soulish or physical. We got to understand that. C.S. Lewis said that when you marry somebody, you're not marrying a physical body first. You're marrying a soul first because that's the content of that soul doesn't change. That's going to be with you. What that person is is what they are in their soul. We are first spiritual people. Whether we're saved or unsaved, we are first spiritual people, not soulish first or physical first. When our stomachs are full and we are filled with contentment, things we think that are going to satisfy don't. We will still feel the need for the eternal. I mean, when, when, we have, 
when we have all that we want, when we have everything that we need, there's going to be something that still yearns inside of us for the imperishable. Look at the American, look at the American neighborhoods that we live in. People have everything, you know. We have stimulus checks coming in every other, you know, all the time. And we get all this stuff happening. You know, people are handing us money. And there's no, there's like, there's like never more of a time where, where people are so discontent. Why? Because we've been made for something deeper. You and I have been made for something deeper. And that is something spiritual. Because we are first spiritual people and not physical. You know, in those days when Jesus here is speaking in John chapter 10, uh, only rich people have meats. Only people that had, had money and resources were able to eat meat. For most people, bread was the thing that kept them on their feet. Bread was a metaphor for life itself, right? In Ukrainian and Russian culture, like in, in Polish culture and Eastern European culture, bread is everything. Bread is synonymous with, with, um, it, with, with life. And bread in the book of Exodus was, was this sweet manna that sustained them in this hostile wilderness. And so like Jesus says, Jesus says, God gives you the bread of heaven. When he says that, he's speaking, of course, the metaphorically about spiritual fulfillment and spiritual satisfaction. And so Jesus here is talking about bread. And in John 10, verse 27, it said, don't work for food that spoils and I'm going to circle back in a second to how Palm Sunday, how this relates to Palm Sunday and Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Jesus says here, don't work for food that, food that, for food that spoils. And Jesus is actually extending the metaphor here and saying that we, we labor for spiritual satisfaction. You know, think of the hard work in the world for people that don't know Christ how hard we work for satisfaction. You know, like how hard people are looking on the internet for, for like, for someone significant in their life. How hard they have to shop and how hard they have to get them, put themselves out there on the internet. How hard it is to fulfill. That is this labor that we have to fulfill this deeper need. And we think it's like, I just need a new car. I need a new house. I need a new mate. I need, new, I need more friends. I need to move out of the area that I'm living in. No, the need, the need is much deeper. And you and I hunger for these things, but we, we forget that the need that we have is truly spiritual. We've heard of this um, phrase that G.K. Uh, Chesterton says, that when a young man knocks on the door of a prostitute, he's actually seeking the love of God that only God can give. We seek for fulfillment in sin because and in, and in entertainment because we're looking, we, we don't, we miss, we don't understand the need, the need that we have. We tr- truly desire and truly need something deeper and that's a spiritual thing. So our primary need in our life is what? It's spiritual, isn't it? Like without that spiritual fulfillment, that's why we can be in, in such a simple form of Christianity and be so happy and so content. And we could have, and then on the other hand, we could be in something that is so amazing and so so ornate and so beautiful that, that and we're in the midst of it, we're, we're dying on the vine. We're, we're, we're not content. And it's, that's just the human, the way the human psyche is. So our first, and this is the first point I want to make this morning is, is that our true need is first spiritual. Like, you know, you and I, our greatest need is spiritual. And that's why Jesus said in John 4, my meat, my appetite, my bread is to do the will of the Father. Mm. And, that's, and that's what true satisfaction 
is coming from. So there's this work of the search that Jesus is talking about in John 10, 20, 27. He says, don't work for the food that spoils. And there's, there's like, there's different ways. And this is what happens, and I don't have time to talk about it this morning, but there's seven ways that people endeavor to do to fulfill that need inside of them. There are these seven strategies. Maybe sometime we can talk about it at another time. But like, there's a point where like in our youth, we're thinking in a naive way, like, you know, I just haven't gotten there. I haven't gotten out there. I'm, I've got a lot of years left in my life. And I haven't, I just haven't had that opportunity to get out, get out there and, and experience what I need to experience to be happy. Then there's the activist approach where you start moving out into life and you begin to realize that you're not getting it. And you begin to blame people and things that are that are blocking you from from your happiness then there's a driven strategy which is like even though i haven't found it yet i need to get a better spouse a better job a better house pushing pushing forward in the hustle assuming it's still out there then it goes to fear and then it goes to cynicism and then and then we just like then we just start detaching our heart because eastern religion says and old greek stoics say that the reason why you're always unhappy is because you attach your heart to things and so you must detach your heart. So when you lose these things, which is inevitable, you're going to lose these things. You won't, it won't hurt so much. But that only dehumanizes us. We have been made for deep relationship with God. We have been made for intimacy. We've been made for, for this communion that we can only find in God's provision. And the, seven, and the seventh, seventh strategy or the seventh approach that people have is really the right approach. And that is that we discover like what... C.S. Lewis said, I find in myself a longing which this world cannot meet. So it must, be, it must mean that I was made for another world. We've been made for another world, guys. We've been made for another, we've been made for another life. That's why we can live like the way we do and, do, and do and talk and live the way we do. And people look at us like you're crazy. But this is really the life that is, the, it's the life and the joy that we have that's so fulfilling because we've been made for another life. We've been made for another kingdom. We've been made for a different, a different way of living. Augustine said this. He said, the reason why we have the discontentment that we have is because our loves are disordered. What really makes us experience satisfaction is not so much what you believe and not so much what you think, not even so much what you do, but listen to this, but it's what you love most supremely. When you love God supremely, then only then does the contentment start to come. And I'd like to rephrase that. When you and I discover the first love of how God loved us first, does our heart get enraptured with something that only creates contentment? I'm so content. I mean, I, I love the way I love the life I live. I mean, I love the way I love the way we live. My wife and I are so content. It, it sometimes it makes no sense. And by the way, if you're walking on the water in your life by faith, don't try to assess your life. Don't try to don't try to use the scorecards to determine if you're being a good parent or not, because those are the wrong scorecards. Scorecards that we use in the kingdom of God are are the promises of God. Like when you and I walk, we've been made to live, and we said this before we left uh, the last message I preached that Sunday, is that we've been made to live by faith. And when we walk by faith and we don't walk by sight and we're, when we understand that we're not in control of things, that God truly is in control, it's scary, it's like frightening, but at the same time, it's so, it's so fulfilling. 
There's no other life that I would want to live. The flesh wants everything predictable. It wants everything understandable. The flesh wants everything under control. But guess what? When that happens, when we get everything under control and everything becomes predictable and everything begins to be understandable and I can, I can fit it in my little head, then that's when the joy of the whole thing ends. That's when it's no longer fun. And that's why we seek to do crazy things because we've been made to live by faith. Let's turn to John 12. And, and, and here's Jesus. He's walking into Jerusalem. And he said in John 6, he said, um, he's talking more about bread. And, you know, John 6, John 10, these two chapters happen just before he walks into Jerusalem. And he's talking about bread in John 6. You don't need to turn there, but I'll just read it to you. And he said in verse 30, John 6, verse 30. So they said to him, what, then what sign do you do that we might see and believe you? And what work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now remember bread. Bread to the Middle Eastern mind speaks of the basic sustenance that I need to be standing on my feet for me to make it in this life. Bread. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. In verse, 30, in verse 32, John 6, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then in verse 34, it says, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Mm. Now, when you read that, that sounds pretty cool. Like, wow, they want, they want God. But it's, if you got to understand here what they're asking, they're not asking for Jesus. They're asking for bread. And I think that this is kind of the world that we live in. That like when we get it, when people hear that Jesus Christ is everything that they could ever want they're asking for what god can give them okay have we done it this way we've done it this way in our prayer life we're asking god fulfill my needs and jesus does not surrender to their entitlement they're saying and, and say okay i'm going to give you bread i'm going to give you the bread of life that i have this spiritual power i have this connection with god and i'm going to be the dispenser of bread that jesus becomes like this bread dispenser and this is where i think a lot of christianity in the west uh, lives. It's like that going to church, believing in God, following Christ means that all of my needs are going to be met. And it means that, that God is going to just be dispensing bread whenever I need bread. By the way, that may not happen. I remember when my dad got saved. I was, uh, I think I was like a 10, I think it was nine or 10 years old. We were living a very good middle-class American life. Things were, we had a school, everything was normal. My dad got saved and everything went to pot. Everything just got really complicated. We lost our house and like we began to understand that following Christ meant spiritual warfare. And it doesn't mean that, that, that God is going to surrender to our sense of entitlement. We have to understand that we have to let God crucify our sense of entitlement. We have so much entitlement as Westerners. I have so much entitlement like I've done this for God so many years and I deserve something. He doesn't surrender to that entitlement. And he, what he, he says, I may not give you bread, but he says, I am the bread of life. Yeah. I'm going to give you myself. Yeah. And there's something in this church, in this Bible school that we have, in the relationships that you have with us, I can only promise you one thing, guys, Christ. Okay? I'm going to fall short. Um, we're going to fall short. We're not going to always be perfect. Um, and I'm not making excuses, but I'm just telling you, like, what we can give you here is Christ. 
and we, we promise that Christ will show up every time we gather together. Because we're not, you know, you can, we're pretty simple. We're not the dispensers of like programs. And that's great. I mean, that's really great. When we were in Iraq, there's so many organizations that are just dispensing programs. And that's great. But when you talk to people like, like the people that we talked to, and they said, what we don't have here is gospel ministry. We don't have discipleship. We met this one pastor, and Billy alluded it to it. He is, um, he's, from, he's from Iran, and he has, he has 88 churches, underground churches, that he's pastoring. He is just a unique guy. I mean, because we're recording this message, I can't really tell you much about him, but we sat down with him, and um, you know, he can't go back to his family. Uh, the woman that he was engaged to marry broke up with him because he's saved. And you can see he's hurting. You know, he's, he's a handsome young guy. Um, but you can tell he's just, there's a broken, right? There's a, this, you can, you can sense it like there's, but he's following after Christ. And, and you know something, we can't promise him as Americans, hey, look, we're going to give you all this money. Life's going to be great now that you met us. It's like, we can't promise them that, but we can give him Christ. Like Peter and John said at Gate Beautiful, silver and gold have we none, but what we have, we can give to you. What are we giving to people? And that is Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me, in verse 35, shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I want to close with this. Everything that you and I eat has had to die that we could live. Everything that we eat, everything that we cook, everything that we prepare has to be in some measure in a place of death so that we can eat it and that we can have nourishment. Jesus says that I'm the bread of the world. I'm the bread of this, of life. He said, my body has been broken for you. And, he's, and he's, 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 he's showing to us that he's the breakable God, that he's the vulnerable God, that he's the God that you can kill. He's the God that, he, that you can touch and eat with, that you can fellowship with. He's the God that can cry, that can, that can rejoice. And he came to earth to die on the cross for our sins so that we are no longer our sin. And that's a beautiful thing because he takes it upon himself. He takes it upon himself, the, the sins of the world, the burdens, the pain. I was in a taxi. I was going through the city of Kiev. And, I, and you can feel in the atmosphere the hopelessness, just hopelessness. Like people don't have work. People are running out of money. Um, life is getting hard. And you can feel that hopelessness. And you know something? The only thing that we can give to a Ukrainian, the only thing that we can give to a Spanish speaker, the only thing that we can give to our moms and dads, to our kids, is Christ. And anything less, we're robbing people. Yeah. And we should, not, we should not promise people things. Look, hey, you know what? It's all going to be, I know you're having a hard time, but it's going to get better. It's like, how many times have we said that? It's going to get better. But maybe it doesn't get better. But get, guess what does get better? Is that Christ marches into our Jerusalem. And I want to finish with this. Is that, mm. that like, Jesus is walking into Jerusalem. Now, historically, in ancient Canaanite religion, Sumerian and Babylonian religions, the God would come in to visit his temple. He would come down from his place of, you know, heavenly places, and they'd build these ziggurats, and they'd build these pyramids and these things where, and the whole idea was that they'd create a platform so that their God could come down and, like, commune with them. And they would always be building these pyramids and these ziggurats and these places so that, so that like, their God could come down and that they could have communion with them. Jesus Christ comes and he's coming down into his, into his temple. And he's coming in on a donkey. So unassuming, so unpresumptuous.
the humility of Christ. And he's coming in and he's saying to his Jerusalem, I am enough. I am all that you need. I am your God. I'm your Savior. I am the one. I am the bread of life. And I'm not here to give you bread. I'm here to give myself. I'm here to give myself to you. And you know something? He's rejected. He's rejected. And guess what? If Jesus marched in today to down to the woodlands, if he came to the woodlands today, guess what would happen? We'd crucify him again. We'd find something wrong with him. We'd say he's too scandalous. We'd say there's something wrong with him. And we would crucify him again. But he died so that we could live. And the beautiful, the, what the beautiful thing is, is that over the years for me, is that, is that, you know, in my youth and in my excitement, I really was excited about programs and doing things for God and missions. Is always, I mean, I love missions. This is, but God has to continually break our expectations to where we are no longer looking for the bread disbursement where we just discover Christ and we say Christ is enough. And I've told you a few stories how like God had to show me that Christ is enough. And you know, until we come to that conclusion that Christ is enough, we are going to be finding ourselves shortchanged. We're not going to have that satisfaction. We're not going to have that contentment. And you know something, this, this brother, I, we, we told you about him, Abraham, he just said, I made a decision for Christ. I lost everything, but I have peace and joy in my heart. Now, who can say that without discovering Jesus Christ? A 19-year-old with his whole life ahead of him. That's amazing. There's a poem, and I know I like poems. Do you guys like poems? I don't know. Is this a very poetic culture? I don't know, but I like poems. Um, one by A.B. Simpson. You guys know that name, A.B. Simpson? Okay, A.B. Simpson wrote this. And I don't know everything about his theology, but I think I like what he wrote here. He said, once it was a blessing, now it's the Lord. Once it was the feeling, now it's his word. Once his gift I wanted, now the giver I own. Once I sought for healing, now himself alone. All in all forever, only Christ I'll sing. Everything is in Christ, and Christ is in everything. When God boils down our life, and it may take decades, guys, don't, don't worry about it, but this may take years in your life where, where you just come to the point where you're like, I don't care about everything else just as long as Christ is present then I'm going to be content. And when that's the case, that's when contentment comes in. That's when we're no longer living in the labor of the search, but we are living in the, in the beauty of fellowship with Christ. Colossians 2.3, it says, in him are all the treasures of, and I'm reading from, the, from the, um, the Amplified, in him are the treasures of divine wisdom, comprehensive insight into the ways and purposes of God, and all the riches of spiritual knowledge and enlightenment are stored up and lay hidden. I think Christ, until we discover the person of Christ, until we gaze on Christ, our heart's going to wander. You cannot tell your heart how to love. The heart needs to be enraptured and captured by a love that's greater than itself, and that's the love of God. That's why first love is so important. And that's why it's okay that Israel rejected their Savior. It's okay. Because now it makes it much more clear that the Savior loved Jerusalem, the Savior loved Israel, and that the Savior was fulfilling the, word, the, the prophecies of God to love on Israel that, that uh, our salvation could be secure. Christ is all and in all. And when we were in Iraq, I just sensed the pre- I mean, here too. I mean, I just sensed the presence of Christ with us, walking and serving with us. And 
and, and talking with our neighbors and ministering to people, washing people's feet. And if there's any greater, if there's any greater ambition in our life than, than to know and to love Christ, we are going to experience disappointment. We're going to experience sadness and we're going to disappoint. We're going to experience discontentment. Amen. So let's just let's close in prayer.